Well, this morning we are in Matthew chapter 25, looking at verses 14 through 30. And uh, Jesus is continuing his theme. This is, incidentally, uh, Jesus' final block of teaching in the book of Matthew. This is uh, considered the Olivet Discourse. So we, we began with the Sermon on the Mount and had several teachings interspersed throughout Matthew. And this is the final block of teaching before we get to the narrative of his betrayal and crucifixion. And that can be found on page 987 of the Pew Bibles. And we'll be looking at verses 14 through 30. Hear the word of the Lord. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he who he will have in abundance. But from the one who has not even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, and that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as always, we come before you resting in your mercy and grace that we might understand your word. We ask that you would open our hearts to understand this message, which is uh, seemingly a hard message. May we see who you truly are, that we may worship in glory 
in who you are. Live lives that are pleasing to you out of the abundance of your grace that you've shown to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, So if a parent says to their child, hey, I'm going to take off for a couple hours, and while I'm gone, what I'd like you to do is to clean your room and mow the lawn. And the parent leaves. What ought to be that child's motivation for obedience? Or if an employer says to his employee, hey, I'm taking off for the day, Uh, It's going to be a slow day today. What I'd like you to do while I'm gone is uh, I'd like you to clean the equipment uh, and then organize the stock room. What should be that employee's motivation for complying with his employer's request? Will the child or the employee obey because they're afraid of the consequences if they don't? Possibly. That could definitely be part of the motivation. Or they could obey to earn favor. Maybe it will benefit them somehow. But are those motivations really pleasing to the parent or the employer? I ask this question because every Christian is in a similar situation with God. Jesus is gone. One day he will return or we will die. In the meantime, he's given us his commands. What should be our motivation for keeping them? This morning, we're going to look at a story that Jesus tells to help us get to the heart of that question. First, we're going to walk through the parables so we can understand what Jesus is saying. Next, we're going to look at how to understand what Jesus is saying. And finally, how we should live in response. So what Jesus is saying. Uh, Like I mentioned earlier, we are in the middle of this final block of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 24 and 25, where Jesus is driving home the theme that his people must be ready for him to return because he could return at any moment. He's delayed, but he will return when we least expect it. Therefore, we must be ready. Two weeks ago, we saw that the kind of person who is ready is the one who is faithfully serving his master— Um, rather than using Jesus' delay as an excuse to live however we want to. And then last week we saw that being ready means being prepared with what we need the most, which is the grace of God. And we obtain God's grace by repenting of sin, putting our trust in the finished work of Jesus. And this week we will see that being ready means using the resources and the opportunities that God has given us for his kingdom, for his glory, we are not to be passive. Jesus goes on, he says, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability, then he went away. And so when Jesus says, it will be like, he's referring back to what he's previously said. Uh, Remember, he's talking about what the kingdom of heaven will be like then on that day when he returns. Now he's telling us the kingdom of heaven will be like a man who went away on a journey. 
And before he does, he entrusts his property to his slaves. Now, I know it says servants in the text, but this is actually the Greek word for slaves. And as we'll see later, it's important that we know that these men are slaves. The master owns them, body and soul. And here he entrusts them with five, two, or one talent, respectively, based on their individual ability to use the talents. Uh, incidentally, this is, this is where we get our English word talent. Uh, but talent here does not refer to abilities like it does in English. Talent is actually the largest single sum of money that they had at the time. The best guess that scholars have is that a talent was worth about 20 years' wages. And so in our time, that would translate to about $1 million, probably a little bit more. And so a talent here, if we want to totally bring that into our time, would be five million, or uh, five talents would be $5 million. And then we're told, he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. So the first two slaves, they take the talent and they double it. And as we know, for someone to take $5 million and to turn that into $2 million requires being smart, bold, motivated. Even without looking further into the parable, we can see that what these two slaves have done is, is quite commendable, and that's exactly what Jesus does. He goes on. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, Good and faithful servant, you have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much, enter into the joy of your master. And so again, Jesus builds another delay of an unknown period of time into his story by noting that he doesn't return for a long time. But then he tells us the reason the master returns is to settle accounts. Remember, he owns them and he owns the resources that he entrusted to them. And he wants to know what they did with his stuff the whole time while he was gone. Which means at some point, Jesus is going to hold us accountable for how we use the resources that he's entrusted to us. And so the first two come forward to show him how they doubled what he'd given them. The master praises them, calls them good and faithful servants, gives them even more responsibility, and invites them to enter into the joy of their master. But the last slave, who had been given just one talent, he goes and buries his. Incidentally, this is, was common at the time, and it was actually the safest place to put your money. Even if you put it with the bankers, you could have lost it. Jesus tells him, though, he also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed, so I was afraid. 
I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. So his reason for burying the talent was because his master is a hard man. And that word hard could be translated harsh, difficult, even unpleasant. He's saying, look, you're a hard man to please. I didn't think I was going to be able to because you reap where you didn't sow and you gather where you didn't scatter seed. So this, this slave thinks his master is the kind of guy who lets other people do the work so he can reap the reward. The slave is essentially saying, you're the kind of guy who takes whatever you want from whomever you want, whenever you want. So what's the point if I don't get anything out of it? I was afraid if I took a risk and lost your money that you'd be mad at me. And since everything belongs to you anyway because you can take whatever you want, there really wasn't anything to be gained from getting you more stuff, and so I just buried it. Here, have it back. We're good, right? I've done the bare minimum. I've watched over your stuff while you were gone. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So the slave blames his master for the fact that he did nothing with his money. According to this slave, the master is the one who's harsh. He's actually unjust because he takes, you know, from other people who've sown and he reaps. So there's no point in trying to please him anyway. But the master calls this slave out. He tells him, you are wicked and slothful. You're the bad one. You're trying to blame me for your laziness. And if you really thought I was so harsh and unjust, you should have been afraid enough of me to at least have put my money with the bankers so I could have gotten some interest. And he goes on and says, So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So in the end, this slave loses the one talent he had. It goes to the one who had ten because he proved himself worthy and capable and trustworthy. Now he has nothing, and even what he does have, which is his life, will be taken from him because he's going to spend eternity in hell. And hell is a place of darkness and loneliness, right? People imagine that they'll go there with their buddies, and they will, but they won't be there with their buddies. And so here's the obvious point of the parable. Jesus is the master and those who profess to be Christians are his slaves. He has entrusted every Christian with something that we are supposed to use for him. One day he's going to come back and judge us based on how we did. If we did well, we will be rewarded with more responsibility and joy. If we did not do well, everything will be taken from us. We'll be punished in the outer darkness forever, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The end. So, how are we supposed to understand what Jesus is saying? Because I imagine there are many of you here this morning who have heard your entire life that we are saved by faith and not by works. 
And so it's utterly shocking to read this story where Jesus tells us a parable about the final judgment where he seems to be clearly judging people based on their works. And so we wonder, how can this be? Is Jesus saying that I need to be afraid that one day I'll be judged by my works? Well, first of all, let me assure you, we are saved by faith alone. But we are not saved by faith that is alone. As Jesus' brother James famously said, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. See, James's point is that we can't show anyone our faith apart from works. It's impossible. Faith that does not produce good works is a false, dead, fake faith. But true, living, genuine faith will produce good works. In the same way, Jesus is not teaching us how we become saved in this parable. He's teaching us how to recognize if we are saved. Good works are a sign that we have true, living, genuine faith. And a sign doesn't get you anywhere. A sign doesn't power up your car. A sign doesn't drive you anywhere. A sign simply shows you where you are. It shows you how far you've come. The two good slaves doubling their talents is a sign. It's a sign that they truly love their master. It's a sign that they desire to please him. They want him to be proud of them. It's evidence of how they feel about their master. They did not double their talents to obtain the grace of their master. They went out and doubled their talents because they knew they already had the grace of their master. Our good works are never the cause of our salvation. They are the result of our salvation. Someone who has obtained the grace of God by repenting of sin and putting their faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus contributes nothing to their salvation. Even their repentance and faith are gifts from God. We are truly saved by faith alone. But if we have been saved, the Bible is very clear. We are now dead to sin and alive in Christ. Paul says this in Romans 6, we know that our old self, meaning our sinful nature, was, past tense, crucified with him. So when Jesus went to the cross, to die for everyone that he chose. On the cross, our sinful flesh was put to death with him. And that happened for a purpose. And that purpose was so that, or as the text says, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. This is why it's so important to note that Jesus is talking about slaves in our passage. There are only two options in life. We are either slaves to sin and we obey it, or we are slaves to Jesus and we obey him. There is no in-between. There's no burying our talent, trying to do the bare minimum to keep the master happy while we live for ourselves. 
If that's what we're thinking, we're deceiving ourselves. Because we will be enslaved to someone. Either sin will rule over our lives or Christ and his righteousness will rule over our lives. When we obtain the grace of God by repenting of sin, putting our trust in Jesus, Paul says we're no longer slaves to sin. Instead, we've become slaves to righteousness. Not to be saved, but because we are saved. Later in Romans 6, Paul says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. So a Christian is someone who obtains the grace of God through repentance and faith. She is no longer a slave to sin. She now obeys God's standard from the heart, which means she does it because she wants to. Just like the slaves in our story doubled their talents because they wanted to. Notice in our parable, the master is nothing but gracious and kind. He's a good master. He entrusts his slaves with a huge amount of resources. Two of his slaves love him. They want to please him. So right away, they take those resources, put them to work for their master. We're told, he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them. And he made five talents more. So also, he who had the two talents made two talents more. They're not responding out of fear or dread of punishment. They're not responding because they want to somehow earn some benefit for themselves. They're excited. They love it. They love the fact that their master would entrust them with any amount of resources. Listen again to how they respond. Master, you delivered me five talents here. I've made five talents more. This reminds me of my children. Look, Daddy, I drew you a picture. My children know I love them. Their desire is to show me what they've done for me. That's what's happening here. These slaves love their master. They long to please him. They're excited to use whatever has been given to them and show him what they've done with it. And notice the master doesn't say, hmm, I've been gone a long time. You should have had at least 15 talents by now. No. Just like I don't tell my three-year-old daughter, your drawing is nothing but scribbles. No, I say, well done, my daughter, well done. Just like he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Here's more responsibility. Notice the reward for a good slave is more responsibility. Just like the reward from a farmer to a good son is the opportunity to drive the tractor. So if God gives us time, influence, money, knowledge, we'll want to use those opportunities and those resources to glorify him. If he gives us the ability to think and reason or privileges or access to power, we'll want to use those opportunities for him. If we understand his grace and what a kind and loving father he is, we'll take whatever he's given us and use it to please him. And like the good slaves in this parable, we won't be jealous because one person has been given five and another person two. We'll be content with whatever he's entrusted to us. 
We also won't compare ourselves to each other because God isn't calling us all to produce the same number of talents just to use whatever he's entrusted to us. I think sometimes we try to magnify the grace of God by always highlighting what constant failures we are. And yes, we fail and we deal with sin and we will struggle with our sinful nature until the day Jesus returns or God calls us home. But the New Testament is clear. We've been saved from sin, which means we're forgiven and free, free and empowered to walk in a new life with Christ. And Jesus tells us the story to remind us and encourage us to be the kind of person, the kind of servant, the kind of slave that he's purchase us to be. Unless, unless somehow we think of God differently than this. Unless, like the wicked servant, we think God is harsh and demanding and that he's unjust. If we think we're following a God whose rules are more than we can bear, if we think we're following a God who reaps what other people sow and takes whatever he wants, whenever he wants, from whomever he wants, so nothing will belong to me in the end anyway, so what's the point? If we're following a God who's so difficult to please that we'll never know for sure if he's happy with us or not, well, that makes him impossible to please. So the question really is, what do we imagine God to be like? Is he a generous God who's graciously saved us from sin and misery by giving his own son for us on the cross? Is he a kind and merciful father? Is Jesus a good master? Because if God is like that, we'll long to please him, we'll trust him. But if he's harsh, and if nothing we do for him matters or is ever good enough, then it will be drudgery to serve him. Notice the wicked slave didn't waste his master's property. He didn't beat his fellow slaves and get drunk like the servant we met a couple weeks ago. So the wicked slave represents someone who knows he can't sin big. He knows he can't lose what the master gave him. So he's trying to check all the boxes, do the bare minimum, so we can have a comfortable life now in no hell. Which means he's trying to be his own master. He doesn't think it's worth it to live for his master either, so he'll go to church, he'll do what needs to be done, check, check, check. But his heart is not burning to go and at once put the resources God has given him to use for God's glory. So how should we live now in response to this? Another question would be, how do we become the kind of person who desires to use what God has given us for his glory? What would that actually look like in the life of a believer? Sometimes teachings like this cause people to ask the question, well, how many works are good enough then? If being saved through a true, genuine, living faith will produce good works, well, how can I ever know if I've done enough? Which is actually the the wrong question completely. Because I don't know about you, because 
Every day I am aware that I could be less selfish. Every day I'm aware that I could be less angry. Sometimes I covet the life that God has given other people. My life is already very, very full, working, serving at church, raising a family. To be honest, I feel maxed out and like I'm not doing enough all at the same time. And I wonder if you feel the same. I should pray more. I should read my Bible more. I should care less about my hobbies and more about the kingdom of God. I should be doing more of something for God's kingdom and glory. I should care more about the poor and the homeless and the widow and the orphan. But I don't even know what to take out of my life to have room to add that in. I drove through Patterson yesterday to go to my son's football game. And as I drove through the town, it was just so, the part of, that I drove through was very run down. And I smelled a skunk, which might not have been a skunk. And I just wondered, who's bringing the gospel to Patterson? And sometimes after a long day, all I want to do is go home, sit down, do nothing, and eat a bowl of ice cream. So how do I do it? How can I know that one day I will hear Jesus say, well done, my good and faithful servant? Well, let me invite you into what I've done this week, which is repent of the ways I see God as a harsh master who's difficult to please instead of a father who is so happy when I bring him my scribbles. Because all of our good works in this life are but the beginning of holiness. And then let's remember that there are many things God calls us to do that require no extra time out of our schedule. If we're trapped in a pattern of sin that's endangering our soul, such as pornography, fornication, adultery, drunkenness, greed, these are all the things that are on Paul's lists. If for some reason there's someone here who's embezzling funds for their, from their employer, or you're the town gossip who always slanders people, or you're living in a web of lies, afraid of being found out. Right? These are the kinds of sins that must be repented of. And they take no extra time from our schedule. In fact, they would open up our schedule quite a bit. First, by confessing them to someone, which will be both the scariest and the sweetest, most grace-filled moment of your life. But for most of us, I think, we have to stop telling ourselves that we can never keep his commandments. We can, and most of us do every day. We don't keep them perfectly. We can always accuse ourselves of some bad motive or lack of effort. But you 
Emmanuel Church, you truly do keep his commandments. We're keeping them right now. We're keeping the Sabbath. We've loved singing his praises this morning. I see great love for God in so many of you. You love his word. You love learning about his word. You love to serve others. You pray and give and repent of sin every day. You give yourselves to meaningful work for his kingdom. And for most of us, our work is just scribbles. But it's the picture we drew for him because we love him and we know he loves us because he sent his son to die for us. So we can, we can just enjoy that God is pleased with us. If our hope is in Christ, we don't have to be afraid. One day we will hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. And then, if we're faithful over a little, he will reward us by entrusting us with even more. There's no retirement in the kingdom of God. Retirement should be a second career with more time to use for God that's already been funded. So if or when he does entrust us with more, we will be able to receive that with joy. Remember, his yoke is easy, his burden is light. There's not a single one of us that starts off the Christian life as a spiritual giant, and most of us will never get there. We're not called or even able to build God's kingdom for him. He does that, so take the weight off yourself. We're not called to address every problem in the world. We live in a world where it feels like we know about every problem as soon as it happens, which just makes us all feel more guilty for not doing something. But if you're a student here and you're in school, you're giving yourself to sports, and you're making church a priority in the midst of all your business, busyness, God bless you. Well done. If you're working and raising a family and serving at church, there's not a lot of time left for much else. This is why, this is why Paul says this in 1 Timothy. He tells us, pray for kings and for all who are in high positions. Why? That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. It is good and pleasing in the sight of God if we live a quiet and peaceful life that's godly and dignified in every way. Friends, we are called to a simple, ordinary Christian life. And the interesting thing is, is if we give ourselves to that simple, ordinary Christian life, it's from that that God raises up people to do great things. But if we're sitting here thinking all the time, I'm not doing enough, there's so many mouths to feed, so much kingdom to build, so many things, oh no, God, is he happy with me? God doesn't want us to live in that place. He wants us to take whatever white page we have in front of us, whatever crowns he's given to us, 
And he wants us to, to make something for him because we love him, because he saved us from our sins. And like children, what will happen is we'll learn to make a picture out of that one day. And then I'm sure some of you have adult children, right? They don't show you scribbles anymore. They might bring like, hey, look at this, this beautiful thing I carved for you. Whoa! Right? We're called to a simple, ordinary Christian life. Wherever God plants us in this life, we're called to be faithful with whatever he gives us. And maybe he will entrust us with more. The best way to do this that I can make out and to continue to do this until Jesus returns is for us to make a life that revolves around the church. You see, we're all too foolish and sinful because if our life revolves around something else, guess what will become our priority? But we all long for community and for friends, but if our friends in our community is with the local church, then we have this life that not only can we invite unbelievers into, but that we can live out ourselves, where we're constantly reminded of how holy God is, how sinful sin is, and yet, how gracious God is, how forgiving God is, how kind He is, how pleased he is with our scribbles. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. May we not relate to you like this wicked servant who was lazy, who was keeping track of whether he had been good enough, who thinks of you as an overbearing king, who's exacting and harsh, but may we be children who see you as our kind and loving Father, who know we've been purchased and who belong to you body and soul, but who love you and who are willing to worship you and trust you and show you what we've done with whatever resources you've entrusted with us. Grant that we would be that kind of slave. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.